wife leaned over the other day and whispered to me last Sunday, I think it was last Sunday, and even today again, she whispered to me, she said, their singing is as loud and as good as churches that we've been at that have had several hundred people. So good. Uh, that way I can sing out loud and blend. Uh. I want to make one note. Uh, in your mailboxes you'll find a little yellow slip, or some of you may have them, that has the rough preaching schedule laid out for the next few months. Uh, do know that that is subject to change uh, as events happen. For instance, we know that uh, March 31st does not work for the visitor we had scheduled, and it might work on April 7th, so we'll make a few adjustments like that. And also, I failed to catch Easter in that. And Easter, uh, we want to have a special service on Easter. So just so for your awareness. So if you have your Bibles or your copies of the Scripture, whatever you use, turn to Ezra. And uh, today we want to look at a fairly large chunk and keep moving through it. Uh, but I also want to give you, uh, last Sunday we were in the dark. And um, we, I had put together a few things that helped give some context. Uh, so... Um, if you want to put the PowerPoint up, and we'll, I'll show you just a little bit of what I was going to show you last Sunday. It helps us get... So this is a, a timeline of the Old Testament, a rough timeline. And we are, uh, we are all the way over here. The, the, God was at work... Um, there. God was at work at building a people. So you have Abraham, the Exodus. You have the, the entrance into Canaan. And then you, we're all the way over here at the far end of Israel's, uh, the time period of, of the Old Testament era of Israel. So we're at the restoration of the land. That There are two kingdoms. One had fallen in 722 and the other in 586. All right? Um, and, and then we're, we're at, these are the last books that are actually written. We'll reference several of them today, uh, Haggai and Zechariah. So the next slide will show us uh, a little bit. Uh, so this is how it works. The, again, Ezra, Esther, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah fit in this same time period. One of the kings that uh, served is Esther's king. And then the old, the, the, the prophets, many of the prophets. There are actually four returns. We'll, let's just, we'll go to the next slide. Uh, this was going to be last week, but there we go. So this is where Jerusalem was. And when Jerusalem fell, or the, north, the kingdom of Judah fell, they were taken captive all the way over here to the land of first Nineveh and then the land of the Medes and the Persians. So the distance that many of them would have traveled would be about 900 miles to go back. So this is kind of the fertile crescent. And um, so, yeah, the, the Assyrians took the Israelites into captivity and the Babylonians took the Jews into captivity. So Babylon is, is over here. All right, um, and so when they return then, on the next, do they return on the next slide? There are three returns, and we are only in the first return, and Ezra is not yet living in Jerusalem. Ezra comes in the second return, and then Nehemiah comes in the third return. The first return is led by a name named uh, Zerubbabel, and that the first thing they want to do is build the temple, before they do anything else, and that's what we're going to look at today. And I think I've... Uh, let's, let's go to the next one. So th this is the return. Uh, this is the first return is in 538, because the first captivity 
is 70 years before that. So the route they would have taken, and Ezra is really clear to map out his route. Ezra and Nehemiah both. And, and there, there, is a, there is reason for that because it gives historical context and weight. So this is a real journey by real people in real time. It's not some kind of allegory that, that is, is supposed to work. If you go to the next one, then we'll just take a look at the temple. This is, um, this is kind of Herod's temple, but uh, this is the temple that they are working at rebuilding. Uh, by the way, that short wall on the, on the left side here, you can just see a little piece of it there. That's the wall of the Gentiles that Jesus comes and breaks down. The dividing wall between us and the Gentiles. But that's the temple that they want to rebuild. Uh, and it's not near, if you, next slide will show the difference between it. And, so the second temple, this is what they call the second temple. And um, this is the, the Holy of Holies is the, is the square portion at the lower end here. And the, the top portion is where the priest could go into, and only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. I think I have one more there. And then, you know, the, the, Jerusalem is, it will be rebuilt then. The walls that Nehemiah built are the yellow ones. Note, it's kind of like a footprint shape. The temple is over here. And, uh, and so this is what they will want to rebuild. Actually, they rebuild the wall in 52 days. Uh, it is an amazing feat. And they, he's very careful to name all the gates. You can work your way around the old city doing that. Thank you. Um, so we want to, I have another slide that we'll just use that one as our backdrop for now. And uh, so turn your Bible now to, to uh, Ezra 3 or your copy of the scripture. And we're going to pick up the story. And uh, what, what has ha- now happened is after some instigation, they've been back in the land a few, a year or two, and they've kind of settled. Now they want to, they, they're going to rebuild the temple. Now the temple is the central part of what they're about. It's their identity. And so they're, in essence, reclaiming who they are. And uh, in, in chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestment came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For He is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the Father's house, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sounds of the people weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is a really incredible passage 
when you think about what has happened here, what is happening here. And, and I, I thought back to the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah from last week. And I thought about how the people are feeling these themes. Remember last week I said that one of the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah is that God is merciful in our failures. And that's what the old men are feeling. The old men are saying, oh, we messed this thing up so badly. Uh, they're feeling other things too, but that's really what they're saying. But that they're also understanding God's mercy. And, and the, gr- the group of people, the small group of people there, are also understanding God's sovereignty. God has brought us back here. And, and God's sovereignty in human history, and that God is involved. Now, He is overall and he does things that we often can't understand, but he is in charge. And then God's power, as they obey, there is the power of God there. Think with me a little bit, those, and, and keep those themes. They'll come back and back and back, time after time in the book. So mercy, sovereignty, and power. These are what the people are feeling. And, and so today we want to look at, we're going to look at a pretty big portion. I'm not going to read it all. There are names in here that I, you can read on your own. Let's put it like that. But what I, what I want to do is look at when the people of God worship, what happens. And then the second thing I'd like to do is what happens when the people of God are faced with opposition. And then the result of that is a continuous rebuilding when the people of God are obedient. Now, this worship service that they're holding here is really fascinating. And by, uh, I, I looked at uh, this passage. They, they, they sing a, a song that everyone was familiar with, apparently. They sang it responsively. That means they did it together. Now, their responsive singing, they, would, they had different ways of doing it in their worship. One of them was that a group of Levites would be up, up front, and they would sing a phrase, and then the people would sing a phrase. Sometimes they stood on one side of the hill, and the other stood on the other side of the hill, and this entire valley, the Kidron Valley, but the entire valley resounded with this praise coming this way. It's antiphonal, Right? It's kind of when it comes from both sides. And it, it, it's overarching. But, but the writer, Ezra, you know, when we think about worship and praise, we think about joyfulness and uh, excitement and happiness and laughing. But if you think about your own life, about half your life is really bad and about half is really good, right? I don't know if you're like that. There's things in my life that, that are... I'm, I'm waiting for the day when everything's going to be okay. How about you? And it's, it's kind of... We can get so caught up that we, we think, well, we'll be able to worship when? Whenever this solved. Whenever I have more money. Whenever I don't have to worry about that. Whatever it is. You, you, you're shaking it out, okay? We do that. And, but, but life is made up of the good and the bad, the hard and the, and the fun. And one of the first times that I really thought about this, we were in a, in a, visiting a church when we were at SMBI, and the worship leader got up, and uh, the service had been really somber up until that time. And then the worship leader got, got up and said, let's stand and let's all worship together in joy and happiness. And I thought, that person has no clue. And, you know, the people didn't sing very loud, and she wanted them to... It was, sorry, I, I, I 
I wasn't going to say he or she, but and I'm not saying anything negative about either gender. The worship leader in this case, the song leader was a woman. It was a conservative, uh, reasonably, reasonably conservative church. And uh, she said, but let's, and she said, I've had such a good week, let's clap. And I thought, well, I didn't. And I, you know, I, I kind of had to command my muscles to clap. And then I can't clap in time anyway. I have no rhythm. And so I was off, and anyway, so I just did it lightly. In my heart, I wasn't clapping. I wanted to cry. And what I see in this passage is that when the people of God bring themselves and, and they gather together in their, around their worship's place, the temple in this case, the reality of all their failures, along with the joy of looking forward, is staring them right in the face. And it's unfair to think that worship is just about happiness and joy. It's also about lament. It's also about sadness. It's also about saying, you know, my life is just not working out the way I thought it would. And my goodness, when I look at the foundations of this temple compared to what David built and Solomon built, there's just no comparison. Now, I don't think that these men were looking back at the good old days because they weren't really good when they were taken into captivity. But they were remembering all of Israel's history. And yet, their words that they say are so powerful. They gave thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. You know what? When you're going through the joyful times of life, you need to remember that He is good. You didn't drum this up on your own. And when you're going through the really difficult times, you need to remember that He is good. By the way, this, uh, this is a really unique passage. Um, I went through and looked at wherever the Psalm 118 is, is the core of it. But in another event in the Old Testament, um, this, song, this phrase comes up, this song. They sang it. Uh, Jehoshaphat uh, reformed at the end of Second Chronicles, near the end of Israel's reign. Jehoshaphat created these reforms. You need to read it, Second Chronicles 20. And then he has this conversation with God. And, and God commands him to go out and fight against Israel's enemies that was oppressing them. And, and so he prepares his army, and then God tells him, don't do that. Send the Levites out ahead and have them sing. Hmm. That would be like me singing, my enemies would run too. Um, but this is the phrase they sang. The Lord is good. It's, it's this very thing that they sang. And this is, this is central to Israel's identity, and it's central to our identity. When we can understand that in the middle of the most difficult times of our lives, God cares about us. And His steadfast love endures forever. That word steadfast means that rock solid. His love does not change. And I often think about it in, in response. I'm sure that those old men, the graybeards there, thought back and thought of Israel's sinfulness and the shame that it brought. And sometimes it's easy for us to look back at our past and our past life and maybe even our corporate past life and say, we messed it up really badly. And then we get stuck in that space. And we live as though we are still messing things up really badly. Shame is meant to be brought 
to the cross of Jesus, our shame, our personal shame, our corporate shame, is meant to be brought to the feet of Jesus, and he will free us from that. It is his mercy that frees us from our shame. We're not meant to live in a place of shame. That doesn't mean we're not sorry for our sins or repentant or anything like that. It means that that power of that sin, as long as we live in shame, the power of that sin and that failure drives our life. And it's not what these men are feeling here. These men are saying, God, you are merciful. You have brought us a long way. So they have this wonderful worship service, and, and I, I was just thinking about us. I know some of your lives now a little better, and I know some of your pain, and some of your joys. And on any given Sunday morning, there's about an equal amount of both sitting here. And we need to be okay with occasionally also lamenting the bad that happens in our lives, in our services. It's about realizing who God is. So they, they have this wonderful worship service, and it, it, it ends, and, it, and it, the people shout it with a great shout, but it doesn't stop there. And the sound was heard far away. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the re- return, hey, wait, 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 what do we hear? Is it those stupid Jews up there? What do they think they have? And almost immediately, they face opposition. <clears throat> now, what happens? Opposition, by the way, opposition is nearly always alike. When we face opposition for, for advancing the kingdom of God, let's use us personally, okay? So as we think about in the next few months, thinking about the vision and the, what is it that we want to look like going forward, uh, we'll, we'll put some shape to it. Oh, you know what? I guarantee we will face opposition. If we want to think about accountability and encouragement and empowering and engaging, we will almost immediately face opposition. And the opposition will come in almost the same way that it came to the Jews. The first thing that will happen is that the first thing that happens when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. Ezra's not back at it. Zerubbabel leading the people. And they said, uh, uh, let us build with you. And, and for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Isar Hayden, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Okay, so this sounds really innocuous. Hey, hey, hey let's partner together. You, you know what? Uh, but Zerubbabel understood something about their aim, their vision, that what they wanted... And what God wanted for them. It's it's quite clear. Oftentimes opposition begins with this this kind of deception. Now it could appear that Zerubbabel's answer is uh, narrow and dogmatic. Uh, But if we we want to understand this uh, underhanded, generous offer, if if there is such a thing... um, We have to understand the the word that they use here, when the adversaries. That word adversaries means hard as flint. You can't mold flint. It breaks. It means hard as flint. And uh, so even in the word that he uses, he's he's saying these people are hard people. And, And Zerubbabel understands it. So the deception of people saying, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Let's get on board. But they have a different agenda. These people do not want the temple rebuilt. 
They don't want the vision of God's people brought forward. What they want is control. And whenever someone wants control, be a little careful. Because God is in control. And so Zerubbabel tells him, no, nah, no, you know what, I think we've got this taken care of. <laughs> it's okay for the people of God to sometimes say, you know what, that is a really nice offer of you, but it doesn't fit in our agenda. Thank you. You'll have to look somewhere else to build that. That's okay. And then it says, well, they say, hey, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build the house. And then they say, you know, the king actually commanded us this. And then verse 4, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid. So the first one is kind of deceptive. The second one is just simply discouragement by fear. Uh, by the way, um, that, that word discouraged there means to, um, to idle or to relax or to be impotent. And so the, the, the discouragement they're facing is, is paralytic. You know, when someone is paralyzed, they can't move. And suddenly they're stuck. They can't move. And they feel afraid. And I guarantee that if we build a vision at any church, this is true of any church. This does not matter where it is. There is an enemy of the people of God. And he sometimes uses people, but the, he, will, he will throw every attempt. First will be kind of this deception. Hey, we should join together in doing this. After all, we all want the same thing, don't we? You know that open-ended question? Don't we? When it goes up a little bit in the back, then you start backing up and saying, we don't. And so, so the first one is kind of deceptive. And then, then they can just come in and say, oh, you guys better watch out. You follow this course? And it scares the people, and they stop. They're paralyzed by fear. Um, fear is not something we can avoid, by the way. Fear is an emotion that comes out of our experiences. But what we do with the fears we feel is our choice. And I do think that there are some common responses. One of them is to fight. They didn't. One of them is to flee. They did. They actually just went into themselves. How often does that happen to me? Oh, anyway. um, so, so you have the deception. The, the, the opposition tries to deceive them. And it tries to discourage them. Again, that word means to, be, to relax, to idle, to be impotent, or actually to, to paralyze. And then you have the direct accusations. And you have this letter. And by the way, um, whether the letter is true or not, whether the words are true or not, the intent of the people opposing is gossip and slander. They intend to make the Jews look bad back there. Now this is really uh, fascinating. The Near East king, kings like these kings that, uh, that are mentioned here, um, they actually, Ahasuerus or Artaxerxes, uh, those kings had uh, agents. Uh, they, they had this intense spy network. It'd make a good novel, but uh, they, they had... Uh, they had, a, they had a guy named the King's Eyes and another guy that they named. This is literally the name of his position, the King's Ears. And this guy was responsible for collecting intelligence about who would hurt the king. Sound familiar? You know, MI5, MI6, CIA, 
uh, NSA, well, whatever, whatever conspiracy theory you want to be there. But, but the, you have these agents, and, and, and these guys immediately, the, the opposition to God's people immediately capitalize on that and sends a letter back probably to the king's ears or eyes and says, Do you know what? You know what's happening over here? These people have always been rebellious. Now the Jews haven't always been rebellious. They lie about them, and the opposition will always do that. And, and so the opposition is deceptive, it's discouraging, and then there's these direct accusations. And, and what literally happens is the people stop. They just stop. And in, in the scriptures, we, we tend to read through these scriptures like this, and we, we don't kind of get a sense for that. The opposition took its toll, and the work stopped. And it stopped for 16 years. There's a space between chapter... Um, Chapter 4 and chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, of 16 years. And it would take another group of people to call God's people back to it. Now, the one thing I note in this, what is 16 years with God? How much is 16 years with God? Not that much. And so God did not give up on His people. And He does not give up on us. You know, we, it's easy for us to assume, well, we haven't done much in the last two years. Or we've been in this mess for the last year. But you know what? In God's mercy, He does not give up on us. And He says, yeah, that's right. You're a little paralyzed and you need to repent of that. And, and the way that God chooses to do that is He chooses to send a messenger. Would you put Haggai up here? And those two guys who come are Haggai and Zechariah. They're God's messengers. Now yesterday, a group of us was together, uh, the small group leaders and the leadership team, and Chris did a fabulous job at organizing us, but we played this game. And uh, what was the game called? I don't even know. It's really fascinating. But there was uh, three pieces to the game, or actually four. Four people on the side. There was the director, the messenger, and then the builder. And Chris did not have this in mind when he played, we played the game. So we played Legos yesterday. The leadership team played Legos yesterday. Anyway, um, so, so over here on a table hidden is something that Isaac built with Legos. And, uh, you know, it's behind a book or something. And, and then there are three places. And we divide it up into teams. And so the director would look at that, what, what Isaac had built. And we had the same exact pieces broken apart over there. And then the director would tell the messenger who had to go over and tell the builder and the observer who sat together what, what that was. And I'm telling you, it was, you'd think that's easy. It's not. It takes a lot of good, clear hearing. And I, I happen to be the messenger, and I, I feel like I inhibited our team a great deal. Because I was trying to visualize what was behind the book and behind the book over here. I couldn't see either one of them. And the director would look at the thing over here and tell me, and she was very clear and concise at how she said it. And then I'd have to, but I heard it differently. And so I took it back over, and I tried to tell the builders, who were not listening to me, they were. But see, it, it got all confused in that process. And it is amazing to me that God actually relies on messengers. But he does. And Haggai and Zechariah are, are two of them. And they, after 16 years, they come to God's people, and this is what they say. 
I was going to have you look at Haggai, but I thought most of you couldn't find it in your Bibles. So I just put it up here. Uh, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel. He's our leader here. And, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So what the people were saying, these people were kept saying, well, shouldn't we, you know, the temple foundation is there. There's weeds growing up through the cracks. Shouldn't we be building that? Uh, probably a few people were saying that, or their children were asking, now, Dad, Dad, why, why are we near? Uh, and, well, um, you know, we face some opposition, and uh, apparently it wasn't the Lord's will, or whatever they said. And because they say, thus is the time. The time has not yet come. It's not the right time yet. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. It's a fascinating portion of Scripture. Because in essence, Haggai is saying, you guys have been suffering for the last 16 years because you've put your emphasis in the wrong place. You've been selfish. You've been looking, you know, you faced opposition and, and the king stopped the building. Let's give him that. The king stopped the building. And then you guys just kind of said, okay, well, we've tried that now. We're not going to do that anymore. It's too hard. This morning I was sitting back in this little furnace room and I was praying. And I began to think about all the things that anything that is worthwhile and good in life is never easy. One of the lies of our culture is that once we find our space, it will be easy. I'm telling you, it will not. It will be easy someday when we get to heaven. But until then, if we really want to be builders in the kingdom of God, if we really want to build the kingdom of God, we have to expect to face opposition. And when we face that opposition, if we retreat into our own little worlds where everything becomes about me, I guarantee you, either now or sometime by the end of your life, it will feel like God went like that and blew it all away. Is this, about, this is not about having paneled houses or not. It's about where their heart really was. And if our heart is not to build the kingdom of God in spite of opposition, in the face of opposition, you know, there are some things that we're going to face over the next year that will feel a lot like the past two years have felt. Let's just not, let's be upfront about it. Or that will feel like your past experience. And your first inclination will be either to um, 
to run away from it or become paralyzed. And if we do that, I guarantee we're going to start looking around at each other and we're going to say, no, wait a minute. Did you see that Jerry has a bigger house than I have? Eh, oh, truck. Brent is driving a F-150 with 3,000 miles on it. Huh. How does he get to do that? Not, you know, that's exactly what happens. Because the attention becomes about me rather than the kingdom. And when the attention becomes about me rather than the kingdom, we actually become one of the opposers to the work of the kingdom. And so I think that God's call to his church, to providence, to us, is that we band together and say, we are going to have each other's backs. We may not agree, and when we don't agree, we're going to fight about it. But we're going to do that honestly and up front. And at the end of the day, we're going to walk out of here and say, these are my brothers and sisters, and we want to build something together. And we're not going to listen to those voices that come along and say, well, how about we help you with that? You guys are a little misguided. Uh, we We should maybe help you with that. But that we are very clear about what God wants. And when we face those moments when somebody says, what do you guys think you're doing? I mean, after you... A bunch of young couples? I mean, think about your children's futures. When you hear those voices, you're going to say, you're going to very carefully listen to them, and then you're going to very respectfully say, we are going to band together and we're going to together listen to what God wants us to do. And then when you get those kind of direct accusations and you begin to hear things kind of, did you hear, uh, do you go to church down there? Is it true that Joel wears pointy shoes? (laughs) And I'm going to say, I don't care about Joel's shoes. I care about Joel's heart, and I love him. He's my brother. Opposition will come. And it will be up to us. Let's not take 16 years or 16 months or 16 days. Let's start building today. And we do that by loving and giving to each other. Let's pray. Let's stand, actually. And before I go, uh, what happens at the very end of the story? After you go through a few kings... Darius the Great comes onto the throne and the same opposition comes to him and says, no, wait, you know, the guy before you, he kind of supported us. In the, and Darius says, well, let me look at the, the work that we've done on that. And he reads, and somewhere the sovereignty of God and the hand of God moves into Darius' life. And Darius says to the opposition, stay away from them. In fact... You guys pay for it and let them do the work. Ha <laughs> ha, I love that. At the end of the day, when the Jews and the people of God repent and come back and say, we're going to do this, the king, in the, under the sovereign hand of God, pays it in full. And he said, uh, he told the, the enemies of, of God's people, if you, are going, if you inhibit them in any way from the work, 
I'm going to come along and we're going to pull all the beams out of your house. All the joists, floor joists. And the house is going to collapse in on itself and then we're going to pile manure into where your house was. Boy, that is really powerful. So let's let the living God bring that kind of ruination on our enemies. God, you have called us to build together. And we do that by not becoming distracted and by standing together. And when, when we are fearful and we hear those voices, we're honest about them. But on the other hand, we bring our fears together and our sorrow together to your feet. May this be a place where people can bring their whole selves to worship. May this be a place that is building, that is moving forward, that is not paralyzed. And may this be a place where you say, those are my people, and if you mess with them, I'm going to tear your house down. Give us the strength to be gracious and kind and merciful to those who oppose and inviting to those who not, do not know your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.